0: I was drifting in and out of consciousness. I spent weeks and weeks in, in the ICU. And there was even a point where I was so sick that my doctors told my family that I wasn't going to survive. I said goodbye to my family and then a priest came into my room to read my last rites. But fortunately, right around the time of, of having my last rites read to me by this priest, um, the doctors finally came up with the diagnosis. And it's a diagnosis that um, around the room, rheumatologists hear every once in a while, but it is certainly not that common. And it's um, idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease.
1: That's Dr. David Fagenbaum. He is the author of Chasing My Cure, a doctor's race to turn hope into action. The story of his personal battle with idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease. He is the co-founder of Every Cure, a nonprofit organization to unlock the full potential of every approved medicine treat every disease possible. He is also an assistant professor of medicine in translational medicine and human genetics at the University of Pennsylvania's Perlman School of Medicine. And he's our guest on this episode of Around the Room. Welcome, I'm Daniel Ennis. And before we get to our guest, I want to announce some upcoming episodes on a whole bunch of interesting topics, including Sjogren's disease and a couple French episodes with host Dr. Hugues Allard-Chamard, if you have questions you would like answered by the experts, please contact us through the CRA Twitter account at Room or by email at info at room.ca. And for future Medical Mysteries podcasts, please get in touch if you have challenging cases you want to present. Now on with the show and our guest, Dr. David Fagenbaum. Welcome. Daniel, thanks so much for having me. It's my pleasure. So you and your work have been profiled in the New York Times, Good Morning America, CNN, Forbes, NPR, the BBC, the Today Show. But today you finally hit the tippy top, and you made it onto Around the Room. So I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us.
0: I'm so, I'm so glad to be on, and I think you guys have the best name of all of these shows. Around the Room is absolutely the best name you could
1: possibly have. <laughs> well, thanks. I can't take credit for that one, but uh, uh, we really appreciate it. So your life story has many chapters to it, and you wear many hats as a survivor, a physician scientist, a speaker, an author, a disease hunter, and I was fortunate to hear you speak a few years ago, and your story was moving, and it was frightening, and it was inspirational, and it was humbling, and it's really stuck with me since that time, and I expect a number of our listeners are familiar with your story, but I'm hoping you would set the table for the rest of our discussion by taking us through it.
0: Sure. So I guess I'll, I'll go back to when I was a healthy third-year medical student at Penn. I was training to hopefully one day become an oncologist. I'd lost my mom to cancer a few years before, and that was my life's mission, um, was to go into medicine to treat cancer patients like her. And out of nowhere, I became the critically ill patient myself. I was hospitalized at the same hospital I'd been treating patients at, and I was admitted to the ICU with all of my organs shutting down. I was on dialysis because of my renal dysfunction. I was getting daily transfusions of red blood cells and platelets. Um, I was uh, drifting in and out of consciousness. I spent weeks and weeks in, in the ICU. And there was even a point, Daniel, where I was so sick that my doctors told my family that I wasn't going to survive. I said goodbye to my family, and then a priest came into my room to read my last rites. And, um, I mean, <laughs> I was 25 years old. It's like this is not, um, not, not uh, the way that you think it's going to go. Um, but, but fortunately, um, right around the time of, of having my last rites read to me by this priest, um, the doctors finally came up with the diagnosis. And it's a diagnosis that um, around the room, rheumatologists hear every once in a while, but it is certainly not that common, and it's um, idiopathic multicenter Castleman disease, uh, a rare hyperinflammatory disorder where your immune system attacks and shuts down your vital organs for an unknown cause. And with the diagnosis, finally came treatment, and I, my, my life was saved, but unfortunately, I would go on to have multiple deadly relapses.
1: You know, I'd like to focus on your experience as a, a patient for a moment before we talk about uh, Castleman itself. Uh, you met a lot of healthcare professionals on your journey, and I'm wondering if there were any interactions or individuals that kind of stood out to you or moments that uh, you still remember really clearly, even as you were kind of going through that process.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think sort of on every end of the spectrum in terms of what those interactions were like, you know, I had on, on one end of the spectrum, I remember this incredible rheumatologist, Preethi Thomas, here at Penn, who kept thinking beyond the specialty classifications. You know, oncology was coming in, infectious disease was coming in, room was coming in, neurology, the, you know, every specialty would come in. And um, and Preeti, uh, here at Penn, you um, kept thinking sort of beyond the categories because everyone was saying, it's not me, it's them, you know, it's not ID, it's Onc, it's not on, it's um, you know, and, and everyone was sort of, and truly Castleman's kind of falls in the middle, but I do remember um, Preeti um, really saying, okay, let's get everyone in the room together. Let's, let's think beyond, you know, our own specialties and try to figure out what David has going on. I think that's, that's certainly, you know, was a great exemplar. Um, I think on the other spectrum, um, Would have been, um, uh, you know, specific specialties coming in and saying, you know, it's definitely not, I don't know what it is, but it's definitely not this. And and that's helpful to rule things out, but it's not that helpful if you're not going to work with the other (laughs) specialties to try to figure out what it is. And, um, I mean then I'll just tell you you know another patient perspective um which you, you may remember I, I talk about this a lot in the book and that was that I was totally obsessed with these blood moles I had all over my my body um that had popped up and um, I didn't know what they meant but um I remember at one point I I was like showing anyone and everyone these blood moles and uh and I remember my my intensive care doctor saying um you know, your liver, your kidneys, your bone marrow, your heart, and your lungs are all shutting down. Forget about the blood moles, you know. Um, and, and I think that my doctor was right um, in terms of, you know, my, my health and my life. But I think that listening to the patient, um, I think, is, is so,
1: so important. I think that's it. That's really interesting that you point that out because I think, um, you know, not to brag or anything, but rheumatologists, I think, kind of pride themselves on on, on paying attention to small, fine details, looking at nails yep. and nail beds and you know the small yep. things uh, but i think that your insight that sometimes the patient is actually just telling you what the diagnosis is and you really do have to listen like sometimes it's in yep. the, the the nitty-gritty and the details and not not in the big picture um that's really exactly. fascinating so you know you're, you you're a patient but also a physician and now you you sort of walk in both worlds and i wonder if that's kind of influenced what it means to be a good doctor for you and uh, a good scientist
0: absolutely i think that you know we are our collective experiences and i am a totally different person today than i was 12 years ago before i got sick gosh i am i learned so much you know it was a not not to 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 be a spoiler with my story, but obviously I'm here today. So, you know, um, I, I survived, uh, you know, spoiler alert. Um, but, but I mean, true, truthfully and seriously, you know, the first three and a half years of my, my journey after my diagnosis were, I think you use the word terrifying. And I mean, I think, and I think that was actually the right way to describe what this journey was like. It was horrible and it was frightening and it was terrifying and it was, um, Devastating, and uh, you know, from those experiences, you know, I, I learned so much about, um, you know, how to how to give care, how to think critically, how to solve problems, um, and uh, and yeah, so it very much has changed who I am today and the way that I do my work.
1: You know, I, I wonder if you'd be willing to kind of tell us a little bit about how your family and friends navigated uh, your illness and your ups and downs and the the last rites and all of those kind of. Uh, Horrible moments in your life, in addition to the joyous ones.
0: Oh my gosh, they've just been so incredible. I mean, my my dad, my sisters, my girlfriend at the time—again, uh, spoiler alert—she's she's now my wife. Um, they they never ever left my side. I mean, you know, as I think about how I got through such difficult times, it was because every time I wanted to give up. And there were so many times where I just completely wanted to give up the, I gained over 70 pounds of fluid from the anasarca because of my liver and kidney failure. So every single organ was surrounded in fluid. My, my heart, my lungs, my kidneys, my abdomen was so protruded. I fluid was everywhere. So it hurt so much to take any breath and, and to do anything. Um, and I just wanted to give up. And there were, there were so many times where I wanted to give up and I just didn't want to fight anymore cause it was just so painful. And it was, you know, sitting there and seeing my sisters by my side and, and, and seeing my, my girlfriend, Caitlin and, and my dad and, and, and them wanting me to get better so badly and me being able to like, almost like feel their, their love, their desire for me to get better. And that just, you know, I, I really could channel it to just keep fighting. And, um, you know, if anyone had told me, um, at the beginning of my journey, um, David, you know, this is going to last for months and months and you're going to start to feel better. And then you're going to relapse again and you're going to have all your organs shut down again. It's going to happen over and over and over again. I don't think there's any way that I could have had the mental fortitude to keep fighting. I would have no, no way I could have, but, um, but it really was this combination of one day at a time. You know, I, Maybe tomorrow I'll start to feel better. <laughs> Maybe mm-hmm. tomorrow, and it's sort of you know, it's a cliche, but like this whole you know one one day at a time, right? But it was a combination of that and then having a clear vision for what I wanted in my future. And that was I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to treat patients. I wanted to be a part of discovering drugs. And I wanted to have a family with Caitlin. And so, you know, when you're fighting day by day through the trenches, you have to have that vision for what you're fighting for. And then the third piece for me, which is what you brought up with your question, is just having my family by my side. Oh, my gosh. There's no way I could have done this without them.
1: It kind of sounds like at the same time you're – the least lucky guy I've ever met, and the most <laughs> lucky guy to have a family like that. So um, I'm yes. glad that they were there for you.
0: I, I totally agree with that <laughs> assessment.
1: <laughs> you know i i want to I want to pivot um, a little bit to talking about the disease itself. Um, you know, it is a rare disease, and I think, like many diseases that cross disciplines, it almost by the nature of how we chop up diseases in medicine, make it that itself, just the structure of how we practice, make certain diagnoses hard to make. Um, And, and Castleman is definitely one of those diseases that it kind of takes a bit from here and here and here. I'm hoping that you can give us a bit of a framework to approach the disease. So what is Castleman disease? How does it present? How do we diagnose it?
0: Sure. Well, first, I'll, I'll just say that, um, what you said is exactly right. And that's why each of those doctors and specialists that were coming to my room, they actually were right when they were saying it's actually not oncology. It's not ID. It's not room. <laughs> uh, and they actually were simultaneously all right and all wrong at the same time, but they were technically right because, um, cause Castleman's really falls right in the middle of all of these. And so, right. um, the way I, when, I, and when I say Castleman's, I'm really, well, first uh, I should refer to the umbrella term, which is all forms of Castleman disease, which includes a localized form called unicentric, or multicentric, where all of your lymph nodes are enlarged, and you have a cytokine storm. And so patients with multicentric Castleman disease, um, basically there's immune hyperactivation, um, where our primarily T cells, but also other immune cells become highly activated and produce a number of cytokines. Um, The most famous one in Castleman's is interleukin-6. And as a result of the immune hyperactivation of the elevated levels of cytokines, that causes multi-organ dysfunction. And so as you all listening know, many diseases can lead to multi-organ system dysfunction. Um, When you see a patient with Castleman's, we look very much like a patient who may have sepsis, or a patient who may have HLH, or a patient that may have really severe acute EBV infection. Um, And so we can look like a lot of things, because at the end of the day, it's just cytokine-driven multi-organ failure. Um, But in terms of Um, How I like to think about categorizing it, Um, it's really important to know that Castleman disease or multicenter Castleman disease can be caused by a virus. Human herpes virus 8 can actually trigger and ignite the immune hyperactivation, um, which is fortunately very well treated with rituximab. You can also have multicentric casamines that is caused by cancer. POEM syndrome, which is uh, a cousin of multiple myeloma, can also ignite the cytokine storm by producing a number of cytokines like IL-6 and VEGF. And then the third option is idiopathic multicentric casamines where you get immune hyperactivation, elevated cytokines, but we don't know the cause. Rheumatologists love idiopathic diseases, right? Or at least maybe don't love them, but have a love-hate relationship with idiopathic <laughs> yeah. diseases. And, um, you know, IMCD is certainly one of them. Um, I should also mention that there are um, certainly autoimmune features in IMCD. Um, over 30% of patients will have um, have some autoantibody detected um, in them. And that's, of course, just the standard panels that are measured. We've recently done a, a collaboration with a researcher at Stanford and, and found that it's even higher than that have, have some of the non-traditional autoantibodies, but there are no, um, of course, no specific autoantibodies where you say, this is pathognomonic for Castleman's, um, mm-hmm. or even that this is a driver of disease pathogenesis. Right now, it may just be a passenger.
1: Mm-hmm. And in the workup, that, that's very helpful kind of architecture for um, how things are laid out. In terms of how we approach kind of really getting to the diagnosis, what you know I don't know if you can off the top of your head kind of list the kind of standard investigations that are going to get us closer do cytokine panels help um, are there any particular tests that you find help to rule in or help to rule out um, and and then maybe we can we can talk about treatment uh, afterwards oh and uh, of course you know biopsy are, are those things going to get us to the diagnosis faster great questions
0: well the cytokine panel um, Though it would be sensitive, is um, is quite nonspecific because so many of these other conditions can also have a similar cytokine milieu. No mm-hmm. um, my strategy, which you and, and your colleagues may laugh at me, but if someone <laughs> has if someone has a fever and they have enlarged lymph nodes, I think you should be thinking about Castleman's. Um, or if they have any constitutional symptoms and they have enlarged lymph nodes, think about Castleman's. And um, when you start thinking about Castleman's, obviously you want to exclude the obvious things that look like Castleman's. You want to make sure they don't have lymphoma. You want to make sure they don't have an acute viral infection. But once you've started to rule those things out and uh, you haven't yet determined what this is, take out a lymph node do a lymph node biopsy. Of course, now, if this is a single solitary lymph node in their peritoneum and it's going to be a horribly morbid surgery, maybe think twice. But if it's a cervical lymph node, a peripheral lymph node that you can get your hands on easily, do the biopsy because the only way to diagnose Castleman disease is through a lymph node biopsy. Basically, I'd say 90 plus percent of patients that get an IMC diagnosis, the doctors thought that they might have lymphoma, so they cut out a lymph node and the lymph node didn't show lymphoma, it showed Castleman disease. So if you've got constitutional symptoms and enlarged lymph nodes, cut out a lymph node and diagnose Castleman's.
1: <laughs> That's very helpful. Okay, so then once we've, once we've established a diagnosis um, and ruled out other, other possible causes of, of the lymphadenopathy, can you kind of walk us through the approach to management and kind of how, how your research uh, and your research actually informed how you treat yourself?
0: Sure. And, and maybe uh, just a couple notes from the, on the diagnosis that I should have mentioned. The one is that um, talking to the pathologist about the possibility of Castleman's is important. Raising the potential, mm-hmm. um, I think, is important when they look at this lymph node. Um, so make sure to talk to your pathologist. The second is that the clinical features that are going to lead you to say this looks Castleman's-like is the tremendous fluid accumulation I described earlier, um, its cytopenias, um, its uh, low albumin, renal dysfunction, Um These are the kinds of things that are, and of course, these are quite nonspecific as well, but this sort of picture of a sick multi-organ dysfunction patient who's got, you know, um, uh, bilineage cytopenias really um, should be getting you to think about IMCD. And I should also say for all my rheumatologists listening, if you think about HLH, think about IMCD. It it seems like HLH has really um, uh, sort of been ingrained in a lot of uh, of physicians' brains, uh, you know, to think about because it, it should be it's so critical um and it, and it you know it needs intervention
1: imcd should absolutely be thought of anytime you think of hlh that's very that's very helpful um and and I guess like further to that point um are there any kind of exclusionary uh, or exclusionary like uh, physical findings or or lab findings that you would say like if this is there it really is very unlikely to be. Uh, Castleman's. So so I guess yeah. the presence of lymphadenopathy seems like it's an essential component of the disease, anything that's kind of the reverse of that.
0: That's a great question. Yeah. So if you don't have any lymphadenopathy anywhere in the body, um, or at least if there isn't even borderline lymphadenopathy, then you can rule out Castleman's. Um, you know, some people will have like generalized 0.9 centimeter lymph nodes and they could still have Castleman's, right? You know, yeah. just cut the yeah, yeah. down Just, you know, that point nine to 1. But right. generally, without lymphadenopathy, you can rule that out. And then on the flip side, if it turns out that you find any evidence of lymphoma, you can immediately rule out the Castleman's. Because unlike something like HLH, where you can have both HLH and lymphoma, we consider IMCD to be a diagnosis of exclusion. So if you can find something else that could explain the lymphadenopathy and explain the cytokine storm, then we say rule,
1: rule out the Castleman's. Okay. Those, those are kind of very helpful rules for, for how to approach things.
2: We'll be back to Around the Room in a minute after this brief message from the Canadian Rheumatology Association. The CRA wants to invite you to visit their website, room.ca. participate in accredited virtual care modules. These are designed specifically for rheumatologists to learn and practice a standardized approach to virtual care. These resources are available exclusively to CRA members and invited guests. Access to the site is password protected. To get your password, please contact info at room.ca. This learning program is supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Novartis, an independent CRA scientific planning committee, was responsible for the scientific integrity, objectivity, and balance of this content. And now, back to the podcast.
1: Okay, so maybe you can kind of school me on uh, how to treat this disease. Sure. So the first stop is
0: always um, IL-6 blockade. Um, I know rheumatologists are very familiar with tocilizumab, but I have to go off on a tangent for a second and talk about the origins of tocilizumab. Um, Daniel, which you may know, um, but uh, you probably are not going to be surprised to hear that tocilizumab was actually first developed for Castleman disease in Japan by Kazu Yoshizaki. Kazu actually developed the drug to treat Castleman's patients. Um, First, he discovered IL 6 was important in Castleman's. Then, he developed tocilizumab to treat um, Castleman's. um, But before he gave it to a single Castleman's patient, I had heard a rumor that he gave it to himself to prove that it was safe. And um, when I asked Kazu, I said, Kazu, I heard from Makoto that you gave yourself tocilizumab before anyone else. And he said, no, 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 I didn't give it to myself. The nurse, the nurse gave it to me. <laughs> I said, Kazu, that's crazy. And so he literally, he discovered that IL-6 was important. He developed tocilizumab. He gave it to himself. And when he didn't die in the early 2000s, he went on to study in a clinical trial. He got approval for Castleman's in Japan, and then, um, when the FDA required a randomized controlled trial to give it an approval here in the U.S., the drug company actually pivoted and said, "We don't want to go through a full RCT in Castleman's. We want to find a bigger market." And they found RA and JIA, oh, wow. and of course, they found all these other markets. But tocilizumab, you know, one of the favorite drugs of rheumatologists is actually a Castleman disease drug.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's fascinating. I, I actually didn't know that. So that that's a, that's really interesting. Um, okay, yes. so so you know the foundation is anti IL six therapy, um, and That's then right. and then what about when that doesn't seem to be working? What are your other options?
0: Great, great question. So IL six blockade works really well in about one third of patients, and when I say really well, I mean patients in the ICU. You give them a single dose of siltuximab, which blocks IL six directly, or tosi, which blocks the receptor. And we just like walk out of the ICU. I mean, it is incredible. Um, so, so aisle six blockade first, but for two thirds of us, you block aisle six, and we don't get better at all. And in in patients like like me, who actually fall into that category. Um, you need to either, well, first you need to start trying to accelerate dosing if we're critically ill. So if we're in the ICU, accelerate IL-6 blockade dosing to every week. So you can really get a sense for, is it that the drug's not working or is it just that we haven't dosed enough yet? Mm. So you accelerate dosing. And if we're getting worse while on IL-6 blockade, we need multi-agent chemotherapy. So you cannot hesitate to give cytoxin, etoposide, adromycin, at once. You need to give combination chemotherapy. And we have guidelines that were published in blood um, for how to treat IMCD um, back in 2018. But um, the, the key here is to be aggressive with chemotherapy in patients who are getting critically ill or getting worse on IL-6 blockade because it is very life-threatening. Um, you know, we, we have a significant mortality associated with progressing on IL-6 blockade. Um, but then if you're a patient who's not quite as severe, maybe you're a more chronic presentation, which some patients do have a more um, low-grade presentation of their IMCD, you actually have the luxury of time. You give a dose every three weeks of IL-6 blockade. You can see, does it work? And if it's not working, you can introduce things like rituximab, like serolimus, which of course, you know, I have a lot to say about mTOR inhibition. Um, things like thalidomide could be introduced as well. So there are other immunomodulators um, that you can add on to and, and really replace the, the IL-6 blockade with mm-hmm. if you're mild. But if you're if you're severe, you've got to be really aggressive in treatment.
1: Can you, can you tell me a little bit about mTOR inhibition and, and uh, how that kind of factors into your story?
0: Sure. So um, in my journey, I shared with you, I finally got diagnosed about uh, three months into my illness back in 2010. And then I had multiple life-threatening relapses. I spent... Months and months um, in critical condition. Um, got a lot of IL six blockade. It didn't work. So I got a lot of chemotherapy. That did work. But I kept relapsing after combo chemo. Every year or so after chemo, when my immune system would uh, would basically uh, replete itself, I you know I would uh, I relapse again um, until uh, the fifth time that I relapsed. And that time, I'd been collecting blood samples on myself. I had just graduated from med school at Penn. I was doing a, a business school degree here, and um, I was collecting blood samples every couple of weeks, um, while I was in business school and, and storing them away. Um, cause I was worried that I was going to relapse and I knew we would need some samples and, and I did relapse and, um, thankfully chemo saved my life, um, for the fifth time. But this time when I got out of the hospital, I began running experiments on those blood samples. So I did some really basic cytokine panels to start. Then I did broad serum proteomics where I measured over a 1,000 analytes in the blood. And I did flow cytometry on my PBMCs. And um, from all of this data emerged this really interesting mTOR signature. So, there, so basically from the proteomic data, you could ask what Based on what proteins are elevated in my blood um, when I'm sick versus when I'm healthy, are there any pathways um, or gene sets that are enriched, you know, uh, more than random chance alone Mm -hmm. or, or what you'd expect? And so the mTOR signature really came out very strong. Um, in that data. And, um, but as you know, you can do proteomics and path analysis and find all kinds of crazy things. So um, I had had a lymph node resected during that last relapse and went back and, and did immunostochemistry for mTOR activation in the lymph node, and it came back blazingly positive. I mean, it was, it was, it was crazy, um, yeah. um, striking to see. And so here we were, we had proteomic data suggesting mTOR, which um, for listeners that haven't thought about this since med school, mTOR is a really important uh, signaling pathway or communication line. That immune cells in particular use, but all cells in the body actually use, um, both for um, uh, activation of immune cells, but also production of cytokines and growth factors. So um, it sort of fit the bill um, that mTOR could be a problem in, in Castleman's. And now we had proteomic and also tissue based data indicating that it truly was active in me. And now as you everyone listening knows, you can have pathways that are too active and then you turn them off with a drug and you don't get any better, right? It's sort of true, true and unrelated. Um, So we had no guarantees that blocking mTOR would be effective, but we really had a nice target here and I had nothing else to try and nothing to lose, right? So um, we ended up deciding to try an mTOR inhibitor on me for the first time ever um, back in 2014. And uh, yeah, I just crossed nine years that I've been in remission on this mTOR inhibitor and I feel great. I take my same three pills every day and I and I'm just so thankful that it's working and there's patients all over the world. Um, I think there was a Canadian patient that was one of our first five or so patients that we treated and um, unfortunately it doesn't work for all of us it works really well for about 20% of Castleman's patients, so it's about one-third of the two-thirds that don't respond to IL-6 blockade. Um, so it's playing a role, and it helps us get to a little bit over 50% of patients with Castleman's that we can effectively treat without chemo, um, but we're certainly still on a mission to find more treatments.
1: That's incredible, and congratulations on the nine years. That's that's really amazing. Thank you. You know, Thank you, you. I, maybe we can kind of talk about... Um, what you have moved on to in terms of your research and uh, your advocacy work. Can you tell me about the Castleman disease collaborative network and every cure and how these dovetail with kind of your current and future research endeavors?
0: Sure. So, um, Back in 2012, um, when I was sort of in the middle of my my illness and my journey and I had just relapsed for the first time, I actually relapsed while I was on ciltuximab, that's when I decided to start the CDCN along with um, my co-founder, Fritz Van Ree, who is an incredible physician um, uh, in Little Rock, Arkansas. And so we started the CDCN because we believed that... Um, that there was so much more progress that could be made to better understand the disease and then to identify treatments that could be utilized. And we, from the very beginning, were very focused on molecularly characterizing the disease and then asking what drugs are already FDA approved that could maybe fix that problem that we were figuring out in the lab. And that mentality was really informed. You asked earlier about sort of the patient Perspective, and I'll tell you what—that is 100% inspired by being a patient. Because when you were a patient, you don't just want to find out what's wrong with the disease and to, and have some new drug get developed that's going to be used in 25 years, right? That's not like right. that's not you know very uh, helpful for you, the patient. Um, and it's important to do new drug development. So I'm not saying new drug development isn't important, but I'm saying from the patient perspective, when you have a deadly illness, you want solutions now that could maybe save your life and save the lives of other people who are currently battling the disease. And so, so we immediately went to this focus on, we are going to crowdsource from within the community of patients, physicians, researchers, the most promising research directions to go into. And we are always going to look to see if there's an already FDA approved drug that can fix the problems that we observe. And so obviously my case was first example, mTOR, use an mTOR inhibitor. You know, uh, saved my has saved my life and has helped a number of other patients. Um, but of course, as it hasn't helped everyone, we've continued this journey and done this um, a, a number of more times. So we did a large serum proteomic study, which led to identifying that um, Jak one and Jak two signaling seemed to be um, highly uh, increased, and so. We tried a JAK inhibitor, Ruxalidinib, which of course many on the call will be, or on uh, listening to the podcast will be very familiar with. And so um, that's another immediately going from like laboratory discovery right to using a JAK inhibitor in patients. Um, And so this sort of approach of deeply profiling disease, finding drugs, repurposing them, and treating patients within weeks of laboratory discovery—right? I mean, it's so exciting. And um, and when you hear about, uh, in, in this case, I remember the the first patient we treated with a jack inhibitor, Kyla. Um, she's a, a young a young girl who was in Chicago, lives in Chicago, and it's been about a year hospitalized. And um, we made this discovery, and, and a couple weeks later, her doctor had reached out to say, You know, this patient's been so sick. What do we do? Um, had already failed to respond to IL 6 blockade and mTOR inhibition, and even chemo wasn't working for her. And it was, Well, we made this discovery a couple weeks ago. Like, you could try a, a, J- a Jack inhibitor, and of course, Jack inhibitors are available all over the place and, and she's been doing great. It's been um, a little bit over two and a half years. This coming Thanksgiving will be three years that Kyle has been doing great. And so, you know, this sort of rapid translation between studying patient biospecimens in the lab and then um, changing treatment paradigms has been so exciting and, um, we've now actually done this a total of 13 times where we've identified an existing medicine that could be utilized in a new way. And of course, room is, is such a great example where this can be done. And it's already being done. Um, you know, Drugs uh, like rituximab and tocilizumab get You sprinkle a little bit of rituximab here, a little bit of tocilizumab <laughs> here, right? And you yeah. know, I think rheumatologists are particularly good at utilizing drugs in, in areas that might be related to but different from the initial indication. And I've certainly, you know, followed that approach in our lab here at Penn. So the CDCN has been on that mission. I joined the faculty here at Penn where where I run a center where we do this at scale across cytokine storm disorders. And then about six months ago, I launched a new nonprofit called Every Cure with the goal of doing this across all drugs and all diseases. So we've, we've really leveraged a number of immune-targeted drugs in a number of immune-related diseases, right? That's sort of what we've done. But as you know, these same principles can be applied across all drugs and all diseases, and some of the same data sets that we utilize for doing this within Castleman's and related diseases can also be repurposed to others. And so um, the the mission of every cure is clear, is to unlock the full potential of existing medicines. The way to do that, um, I'm really excited about, um, and it's leveraging some, some really cool new technologies in the fields of both knowledge graph theory, but also artificial intelligence to basically, the bottom line is we leverage the world's knowledge on diseases, drugs, and targets for diseases to then predict what drugs are most likely to be effective for what diseases. And the thing I'm most excited about is that we've just generated for the first time ever a 36 million cell heat map of all drugs against all diseases. There's 3,000 approved drugs and there's 12,000 human diseases. We have a single score for every drug against every disease based on the world's knowledge. And um, we're really excited about the top hits that we've gotten back and we're digging into them further. We're going to keep refining it. But, you know, at the end of the day, Um, you know, whether it's Castleman's or COVID or whatever it may be, and and whatever the drug may be, it's really just about this drug for this disease and thinking, in my opinion, at a systems level about how many diseases can we treat with every drug.
1: That's uh, sincerely incredible. I'm uh, I'm pretty blown away. Um, You know, I think a, a couple of like thoughts here. So one is that I think many of like the brilliant inventions and thoughts of the past are often kind of intuitive in a sense like the minute someone oh. says it you're like well ob- obviously like and 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 to that end I you know it's it's it, it does blow my mind that like that's not how it has worked like what you have just said is a new idea but it is actually just just seems like the logical approach to research um and, oh. and so you know that that's not to diminish the brilliance that's actually to elevate it I, I think that's an incredible idea it also seems to, Almost draw on the fact that when you invite ten different specialists into your room where you are sick, and each one coming in at a time saying, "This isn't my disease," goodbye, Mm -hmm. is very different than getting everyone in the room and saying, "Like it's not my disease." Hey, you over there, what do you think about this? Do you have Do you have any thoughts on this small piece? And so, leveraging kind of that those insights. Is almost nope. analogous to you leveraging medications from over there. That why would you know about? You don't work on those diseases, so that it's it's just so it's so impressive. It's so it's so um, mind blowing, um, but also kind of simple in its uh, in in kind of its structure in a sense.
0: Well, I, I love that analogy because I, I hadn't thought about it, but you're exactly right. It's it's the exact same concept. We're in medicine; we we have to lean on on other specialties. We have to you know lean into areas that maybe we don't know as well, and um, we're constantly repurposing concepts from others. And yeah, it, it's the same thing here in, in, in what we're doing with every cure. And like you said earlier, if we were to start out. All of R&D, and as you know, we spend like a quarter trillion dollars a year on R&D around the world. A lot of money is spent, a lot of effort is spent. If you were to start out by saying, we're going to create this thing to look for drugs, one of the first things you'd build is a database of all the drugs, all the diseases they're approved for, and all the diseases they might be helpful. And that just like would sort of serve as like your starting point, right? It's like, this is your answer key. And these are the areas that are filled in. And these are the areas that aren't so filled in that we need to fill in more information about. And then we would go from there and we'd build upon it. But for whatever reason, that first principle, just like sort of like what's the map of all drugs against all diseases, was never constructed. And um so we are so excited about this. I mean, Daniel, this is like yeah. I'm so fired up about
1: it. <laughs> that's that's really incredible. Um, you know, just before we started this interview, me me and my producer were actually just talking about the AI um uh it, it, you know, AI in the news, but but actually. Yep. We were wondering if AI factors into your future work, and you actually did flick at that um, um, earlier. So, you know, how how is it factoring in? How are how are you using kind of that technology to kind of compose this this massive database and, um, you know, mine the existing research, which no one human brain could possibly, um, you know, pull it all together. Exactly. So
0: there's a few different ways. Um, the first is um, uh, using natural language processing, which is it's similar to these large language models that we've all heard about in the news recently. But natural language processing enables us to look across every paper that's ever been published in PubMed and to look for connections between drugs and diseases specifically. So rather than a large language model, which obviously is trying to do a lot of other things, natural language processing is specifically looking for relations between drugs and diseases across billions of papers. Um, so that's step one, which has been really, really helpful. Um, step two is... Um, what's called, uh, well, we use this one particular machine learning approach called a random forest model, where basically once you have all drugs, diseases, and targets mapped out, imagine a two-dimensional connection between every drug, every disease, and every target, something like Castleman's IL6 siltuximab—that's like a nice link, right, between those three nodes. Mm-hmm. Um, but imagine having every drug, every disease, and every target in this giant knowledge graph, which is um, which is what has been built by a number of academic centers, including UNC and Penn State and others. So imagine this giant knowledge graph. We use something called random forest to say we train this algorithm where we say, okay, all of the examples like siltuximab, IL6 Castleman disease. Those are the good examples. You train it on examples of all of the connections between drugs, targets, and diseases, where you know that that actually worked. And then you say, okay, artificial intelligence, go find links like this that look like this across the rest of biomedical knowledge and come back to me with a score with a 0.999, meaning this is a score that looks like all the good ones and a 0.00, meaning it doesn't look anything like like the good ones. And so that is now a prediction that a 0.99, it predicts that that drug is likely effective for that disease because it's got a, pa- a network pattern that looks like the ones that actually work. And to your point, no human could ever in a million years do that. I mean, it's, Thirty-six million scores in a matter—it's actually days. At some point, it will be faster than that, but it's days of, of running this algorithm. Which, if humans were doing this, it would take you know centuries, right? And so that's number two. And then the third is actually beginning to leverage these large language models because what we're doing is a lot of um, uh, sort of I would say structured drug target disease linkages. Large language models can be even more nuanced, and we're all learning about how they work through ChatGTP and other other um, Of these large language models, but they can be more nuanced and looking at, um, at a lot more information that we can't even, we can't even load into the system. Right now we're loading things and saying, find these patterns, large language models will actually find patterns that we didn't even know to look for. And so, but of course you can't do that unless you have things all in one place. And so we're building the data set, we're applying the tools at hand, and then we're going to start unleashing the large language models.
1: That's really incredible work. Uh, If if listeners want to help or contribute, how can they get involved with your organizations?
0: So in in a few ways. um, So for... um, Castleman's, if you ever see a Castleman's patient, please, please reach out to the CDCN. Send me an email, reach out to the CDCN, David at castlemannetwork.org, go to CDCN.org, um, because we have a registry in place. We've got a biobank in place. We can consent patients all over the world to giving us a blood sample and doing our registry. Please do that. Um, and then, in terms of every cure and getting involved in this mission to unlock new uses for medicines, I am sure every single rheumatologist on this call has used a drug in an off-label fashion or repurposed a drug for a disease that it wasn't intended for, and it's either worked really well or maybe it hasn't worked well, and there's no sort of way to capture that information. So I'm really interested in figuring out a really great user-friendly way for you, Daniel, when you use rituximab for some use that's so far off the label, but like it actually helps or toasty or whatever it may be, or anakinra, like that we have a way to capture that. So that way it can actually be fed into this because, you know the next patient should be able to benefit from the previous patient that received it right mm-hmm. so reach out to me about every cure. If you're interested in thinking about how do we do that? How do we build a system that, that physicians can feed in information and it can and feed back information about, about drugs. Um, and so that's every cure.org. Um, and we're very much in the middle of like organization building fundraising mode. And so we're looking for talented people, smart people who are thinking about this sort of stuff. Um, anyone who, you know, is excited to donate and to support our work at every um, please do reach out. And then, um, of course, the last way is by just sort of following our progress. If you go to ChasingMyCure.com, you can get all of our social handles and you can follow the work that we're doing um, and potentially check out Chasing My Cure and learn more about the journey.
1: David, sincerely, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was a real treat to talk to you. Oh, Thanks so much for having
0: me, Daniel. I, I so appreciate it and, and really, really appreciate all the time and effort you've put into spreading the word for our mission.
1: Our pleasure. That's it for this episode of Around the Room. For questions, comments, and future episode ideas, email us at info at room.ca or tag our Twitter account with your questions at C-R-A-S-C-R room. Around the Room is produced by David McGuffin, Dr. Dax Rumsey, and Aaron Stewart. We'd like to give a special thanks to the Communications Committee and the staff of the CRA for all their hard work. Our theme music was composed by Aaron Fontwell. If you enjoyed your time with us, please give us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. You can also share this podcast with your colleagues and spread the word on social media. I'm Daniel Ennis. Thanks so much for listening.